All right. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, uh, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12 this morning, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 5. That was a lot of kids this morning. It was awesome. Uh, to remind you, last week we looked at the opening verses in the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk looks around and he sees the sin of God's people and he cries out to God. He laments what he sees. He says, Lord, when are you going to do something about the sin of your people? And God's response is unexpected. He says, good news, Habakkuk, I'm going to send the Babylonians, who are super wicked, and they're going to judge my people. Habakkuk is not particularly excited by this response. And that's where our passage this morning picks up. So we're going to look at Habakkuk 1, 12, verses, uh, through verse uh, 5 in chapter 2. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up? the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich." Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's pray and ask God for his help to understand his word this morning. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word and we pray this morning that you would send us your spirit. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds. Show us our sin, and more importantly, show us Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. 
So in the biggest picture, our passage this morning is about Habakkuk complaining again. He's complained once, God has answered. Habakkuk answers back to what the Lord has responded and functionally says to God, how is this the plan? Babylon is worse than we are. And he says, I'll wait for your answer, Lord. And God answers. And what God says to Habakkuk is, Habakkuk, all of what I have said is going to happen. Wait for it. If it seems slow, it's still going to happen. In fact, we know that everything the Lord told Habakkuk happens within probably eight years of the time that Habakkuk wrote these words. And God affirms to Habakkuk that, yes, Babylon is wicked. And yes, they are worse than you are. But the righteous shall live by faith. This section in the book of Habakkuk is something of a transition. The themes are pretty similar to what we looked at in the text last week. You have complaint, you have lament, even Habakkuk pouring out his concerns to God. And this passage prepares us for what we're going to see next week, which is God's ultimate answer to the problem of Babylon and their wickedness. But what I want to do this week is I want to look at this passage because I think this passage helpfully illustrates for us two ways to live. There is a way here to live that is wicked, and there is a way here to live that is righteous. And I want to think about that distinction and what that might teach us about our own hearts and what it means for us to live as God's people. Thinking first then about the way of the wicked, what I see here in verses 12 through, well, really everything except for verse 4 in chapter 2, this whole passage shows us that central to living in the way of the wicked is this idea of self-sufficiency. That is the heart of a life of wickedness. And friends, that shouldn't surprise us because if you look all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, the original temptation to Adam and Eve is that if they ate the fruit, they would be like God. They would need nothing. They would be dependent upon no one. They would be like God. They would be self-sufficient. And I think this passage shows us three things that characterize this self-sufficient life of the wicked. The first thing is that the wicked worship the things that give them the illusion of self-sufficiency. The wicked worship the things that give them the illusion of self-sufficiency. You see this in verses 14 to 17, where Habakkuk, or where the Lord actually, introduces this image of the fisherman. And in verse 14, the image is sort of unpacked for us. He said, the nations are fish, and Babylon is like a fisherman. Verse 15 says that they pluck up the fish with their hook and with their net and with their dragnet. They are just gathering and collecting and catching the nations in their power. And in verse 16, it says that they live in luxury, they are rich by this gathering of the nations. 
And because they are so confident in their own power and in their own abilities, they are actually worshiping and sacrificing to their net and their dragnet. One of the commentators I was reading on this passage makes the point that the hook and the net and the dragnet were all technological advances. A hook lets you catch one fish at a time, a net lets you catch more fish, and a dragnet is even a more effective way of catching multiple fish at a time. And so what you see here is the image of the fisherman culminates with Babylon worshiping these technological advances that gave them riches, that gave them this sense of self-sufficiency. And what I want to say this morning is that technology is good. Friends, we were made to create things. We were made to tinker with the creation. In fact, I think that's part of what it means to say that we are made in God's image. In Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, God makes us, male and female, in his own image. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion. God has made us in his image to be sub-creators in his creation. We are to take the raw materials of this world that he's given us and make new and cooler stuff with it. Technology is good. It is part of what we are made to do. But technology can be distorted And it's distorted when it is used to make ourselves believe that we are more than human. When technology begins to give us the impression that we are like God or that we are self-sufficient, it is distorted. And that is what Babylon has done here in these verses. Babylon has taken their God-given capacity for creation and innovation and they have turned it to destruction And then they have worshipped their own power and their own might. And it's important for us to note, Babylon is not self-sufficient. They are worshipping something that is giving them the illusion of self-sufficiency. Here's where this gets harder for us. What might be some technology that gives us an illusion of self-sufficiency? Are there technological advances that we use, maybe without even thinking about it, that might give us the impression that we are like God? I want to think about our smartphones for just a minute. Smartphones are not bad. Smartphones are not intrinsically evil. But smartphones, in some capacity, have given us the impression that we can be everywhere that we can be omnipresent. I can be standing here and texting and communicating with people across the world. I can be in a conversation with you while also texting someone else. For the first time in my life, I have the illusion potentially that I can be omnipresent, which is dangerous. My smartphone also teaches me that I can pretty much know everything. Sometimes we talk to our kids about why they still need to learn things, and I've heard the response on more than one occasion, why do I need to learn this? I can just Google it, right? Google has given us the impression 
that we can know everything. More than that, our phones have even given us the idea that we can do anything. With the push of a button, I can summon transportation to myself. I can have books arrive at my front door with, within one to two days. And now even food itself will present itself to me if I push the right button on DoorDash. Now this is kind of silly, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not actually saying to you that using an iPhone or using a, a, Gal a Samsung something, uh, whatever phones they make now, I'm not saying that that is intrinsically sinful. But here's something to think about. Why is it that the average American looks at their phone every 4.3 minutes? Think about that. That means over an average year, you look at your phone around 81,500 times. In some respects, our phones are giving us the illusion that we can be more than human. In some respects, our phones are giving us the illusion that we can be everywhere, that we can know everything, that we can do anything, and that technology is ultimately our hope. If Babylon was tempted to worship their nets as a thing that gave them the illusion of self-sufficiency, it's important that we don't just laugh at them and move on, but we should think about in our own lives, what are the things that give us the illusion of self-sufficiency? Anything that makes us feel like we are more than human, friends, is potentially dangerous. The wicked worship the things that give them the illusion of self-sufficiency. The wicked also in this passage we see have a false view of themselves. Uh, you see it there in verse 4 of chapter 2. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Self-sufficiency, this illusion we have, makes it impossible for us to see ourselves truly. Puffed up is simply thinking about yourself wrongly in a positive direction. And friends, if your soul is puffed up within you, it feels like a constant fear of being found out. If your soul is puffed up within you, then things like admitting your shortcomings become a dangerous threat to your very sense of personal integrity and well-being. A person with a puffed up soul is unwilling to own or to even see their own deficiencies, to even see themselves truly, much less to admit their sin or their guilt. All of those things become a threat to our illusion of self-sufficiency. And friends, if we want to be self-sufficient, we are signing ourselves up for self-delusion. You see, one of the things that sin does is sin distorts our self-perception. There's an actual psychological effect that gets at this, and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have any of you all heard of this? The dunning I'm proud of you, Jack. <laughs> Preacher's kid. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a documented psychological effect that shows that the less you know about something, 
the more confident you are that you know a lot about it. Isn't that amazing? They would give people exams, and the people who did the worst on them believed they did the best. They were deluded about themselves. That's what sin does to our hearts. It makes us think we're great at stuff that we're terrible at. It makes us think we know more than we actually do, and our confidence goes up as our ignorance actually goes up. That is sin. That's what sin does to us. Uh, in my own experience as a pastor, in the, in the same light, I've never met an immature person who thought they were immature. It's amazing. Mature people can tell you where they are still immature. Mature people can tell you where they still have room to grow. Immature people think they're awesome. That's what sin does. It twists and distorts our sense of self. It gives us a false self-perception. The life of the wicked means our souls are puffed up. We have this false image and understanding of ourselves. The third thing I think we see in the text is that the life of the wicked never has enough. Never enough. Look at verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. That's the grave. His greed is as wide as the grave. Like death, he has never enough. Man, what a profound image that is. Like death, he has never enough. Friends, if self-sufficiency is your goal... You can never have enough. You can never be enough. If self-sufficiency is your goal, you will constantly work to accumulate and get more. More of something, more money, more approval, more power, more status, but it will never be enough. If self-sufficiency is your goal, you will never be rich enough. If self-sufficiency is your goal, you will never be competent or attractive enough. You will never be accomplished enough. In fact, one writer says, if that is your goal, these things will end up eating you alive. If self-sufficiency is your goal, there are constantly moving goalposts. And friends, in some respects, that is God's grace to us. Because if we could actually get to the point that we were self-sufficient and we felt self-sufficient, we would have no hope. It is God's grace that we can never have enough when we are pursuing our own self-sufficiency. Friends, when the Bible talks to us about sin and about wickedness, one of the things it is inviting us to do is to consider our own hearts. It is inviting us to look at ourselves and to assess ourselves honestly. And part of what this description of the Babylonians is inviting us to do this morning is to see that we have a hint of Babylon in all of our hearts. All of us are tempted in some capacity to this life of wickedness. We are all tempted in some capacity to pursue a life of self-sufficiency. And we worship the things that give us that illusion and we have a false view of ourselves and we realize that we never have enough. But 
There is another way to live. There's another way to live. And we see it in verse 4 of chapter 2. For the wicked, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Friends, the way of the righteous is the way of faith. And what that means for us this morning, faith is not just having sort of right belief. It's not just believing and thinking the right things. Faith, this kind of faith, means living into the truest story of the world, even when that story doesn't feel or seem true. The life of faith is a life lived by faith. We live in light of what is most true, even when it's not what is most apparent. You see it in verse 13 of verse 1, living like that even when God seems to be silent, when the wicked are swallowing up the righteous. I think one of the most profound examples of this life that I've ever heard of is the story of Father Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, you may have heard his story even if you never knew his name. Uh, Father Kolbe was a Franciscan friar in Germany during the time of the Third Reich, during the time of World War II. And in his monastery, they were printing anti-Nazi materials. And Father Kolbe, along with the other monks, were eventually arrested and put in the Auschwitz concentration camp. In one week, several prisoners escaped from the camp. And so the camp director, the head of all of the prisoners, decided that he was going to select 10 men at random and put them in an underground bunker to starve to death. It was a horrible way to die. It was a way to die that they reserved to demoralize prisoners because you could hear the men starving to death. It was terrible. And so the camp director goes through and picks 10 men at random. And he selects one man, and that man begins to cry out, my wife, my children. With that, Father Kolbe, who was standing by, also a prisoner there, steps forward and says, I would like to take that man's place. And the camp director was completely taken back by that. He was so surprised that he granted the request. And so Father Kolbe took that man's place, and along with these other ten men, went to this underground bunker, where for weeks they were starved to death. And friends, normally that was such a horrific and hideous way to die, you would hear screams and wailing and the men would turn on one another as their hunger overtook their ability to even reason. And yet, during the time of Father Kolbe being in that underground bunker, the men were heard praying and singing hymns. Father Kolbe, after three weeks, was the only one remaining alive and the Nazis needed the room. And so they finally executed him alone. Friends, he lived by faith. He lived in a way that represented what was most true even in the midst of a death camp. That is what living by faith looks like. There was something more true for him than what was happening around him. The righteous shall live 
by faith. Friends, at the end of the day, what's important for us to understand, what's important for us to know, is that Jesus is the only righteous man. Jesus is the one who most truly and most fully lived by faith, who trusted his heavenly Father. Jesus is the one who lived into the true story even when it didn't feel true and nowhere is that more evident than on the cross where the wicked swallowed up the man more righteous than he, where God seemed to be silent. That's why Jesus hanging on the cross eventually cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt the true weight of what Habakkuk here describes in these verses. And what this reminds us and what this calls us to know is that none of us is righteous on our own. In fact, none of us is even capable of mustering up faith to believe on our own. What is happening in our lives is that Jesus is working this life of righteousness into us. And as Jesus does that over days and over weeks and over months and over years, is that instead of worshiping the things that give us this illusion of self-control, Jesus is teaching us to worship God, our Heavenly Father. Instead of having a false view of ourselves, a false self-perception, Jesus is teaching us to see ourselves truly. The great Presbyterian uh, pastor and theologian Francis Schaeffer says, we are glorious ruins. We are glorious because we are made in the image of God and we have dignity and we are worthy of love because of that. But we have been ruined by sin. We are capable of evil and we are selfish. And as Jesus is teaching us to see ourselves truly and rightly, we become more and more free to own our sin, to admit our shortcomings, to admit our insecurities because we are secure in Christ and we are loved and accepted by our Heavenly Father. And friends, Jesus is teaching us that instead of never having enough, we can be content. Because in Christ, our insufficiency is all we need. As one pastor put it, all we need is nothing. All we need is need. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in Christ you are working a life of righteousness into us. You are giving us faith. You are teaching us to worship you instead of the things that make us feel self-sufficient. You are teaching us to have an accurate view of ourselves, to see our sin, but also to see the glory of the image that you are restoring in us. And Father, you are helping us to not be discontent, to not feel like we never have enough, but to be content in Christ because we are secure that we are loved. Father, all that we need, you have provided. And we pray even now, as we come to your table, that you will be at work in us.
We pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in your grace and to make us more and more like Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.